Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There are 40 days to go until Election Day, which is a little bit mind-blowing. And we're joined by uh, one of our smartest friends, Josh Kroshauer from the National Journal to figure out where we're at. Uh, so thanks for coming back, Josh. Appreciate it very much. Hey, great to be back on the show, Charlie. For, it's hard to believe 40 days, but but there may be another 40 days of, of, of post-Election Day craziness. Okay, but that's like biblical, right? 40 days and 40 nights. And then it rained for, I mean, that was the, 40 days was enough to flood the entire world, I guess. Um, so, okay, I I want to get to what the president said. We have so much. We got the Supreme Court. We have the, uh, the, the president uh, raising questions about whether there would be a peaceful transfer of power. The easiest question you could possibly ask a politician, you know, will there be a peaceful transfer of power? And of course, we know what happened. I want to get to that and and the, and the freak out. Um, I, I wanted to bounce this off you because I I did something a little bit different on my newsletter today, the, the Morning Shots newsletter uh, called we call it Nightmare Nation. And I started off writing about sort of, you know, the nightmare scenarios that people are coming out with. You have the Atlantic with this really you know, horrific story of you know, how Republicans could go to state legislatures and challenge the electors and, th- and all of these other these uh, all of these doomsday scenarios. And it did occur to me that this has been kind of a nightmare year. And I mean that literally that, you know, the other night I, I actually I had one of those dreams, one of those anxiety dreams where, you know, you get lost and you're late or you've misplaced something or you've done something. You, you, I don't know. You, you're you're a much more level headed guy than I am. Do you have those kinds of dreams, Josh? You know, I've actually strangely been calmer lately. Maybe it's, you know, the, the, the people talk about how things have gotten crazier and you adjust to the crazy so I mean, my 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 nightmares, my my uh, alarm came maybe in 2017, more more yeah. after the election, more than it is now. But um, I also think I, I I also would urge a lot of folks just to take a deep breath. Um, oh yeah, because I think a lot there's a lot of overheated rhetoric. There's a lot of panic yeah. porn that's out there. The Trump likes it. That's what he what, that's what he wants. And uh, I think you know when you think things logically, you kind of have a level headed mindset to a lot of this stuff you can actually calm yourself down and, and, and you know, I, do it with I, some justifiability. I actually can do that when I'm awake because the problem is when I go to sleep, you know, you have these things. So I actually looked this up. So I had, I had this kind of edgy dream where I'd actually borrowed somebody's notebook and I'd written something down about it. And, you know, I can remember, I usually can't remember my dreams, but I can remember my dreams lately. And I remember writing down somebody's like reporter notebook and I wrote down two words and I can remember what the words were. And it was pandemic panic. <laughs> But then, but then I, I, I misplaced the notebook. I laid it down someplace and then I went back to try to find it and go back into the room and these men are rearranging the room and I can't find them. I'm going from one person to another. Did you see the notebook? You see the notebook. And then my phone rings and it's the guy whose notebook, you know, it was, it was his notebook. And I knew I was really in trouble. This was going to be really bad. So I wake up. I remember all of this, come down to do the newsletter. And I don't know if you, you, you obviously are more level headed than, but it was this kind of this emotional hangover. I mean, I wasn't actually hungover. It was one of those things. So I, I Googled. The first thing I did was was to Google pandemic nightmares, vivid dreams. And there's like a ton of stuff. And apparently it's it, this has been a, a 2020 thing. And, and I, there's an expert who says normally we use REM sleep and dreams to handle intense emotions, particularly negative emotions. But obviously the pandemic is producing a lot of stress and anxiety. And then, of course, you, you put on top of that the election. So 
If if you have the impression that people are a little bit edgy or maybe a little bit crazy, it's it may not be your, your imagination. There there may be something going on. So your advice is good. Take a deep breath. But man, it it's uh, this next forty days is going to be is going to be wild. Uh, the Supreme under normal circumstances, Josh, a a the Supreme Court seat flip would be just a consuming firestorm of political toxicity, wouldn't it? In just stand alone, right? <laughs> Look, as long as I mean, Trump is the chaos president, as Jeb Bush famously called him as the chaos candidate. And, and people are driven crazy on all sides based on anything Trump says, tweets, does, um, sometimes and, and oftentimes justifiably, sometimes maybe not so much. Um, but everything is going to be DEFCON, DEFCON 5 from here out until the election. Uh, the Supreme Court fight is, is actually quite interesting because, you know, in the immediate aftermath of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, uh, we thought it was going to be this seismic, you know, fight that that, that was going to occupy, you know, all, all the, the campaign and all the discussion on the campaign trail. But we've actually learned that Joe Biden doesn't really want to talk about the Supreme Court a whole lot. And Mitt Romney, who, who many folks thought was going to be sort of the, the last minute swing vote, uh, when it came to deciding whether to confirm the, the Trump justice, pretty quickly came out in favor uh, of, 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 of passing, confirming Trump's nominee uh, before the election. So, um, you know, it's going to have a big political impact, or at least it's going to, you know, drive political coverage in October. But ultimately, you know, we, we have an attention span of a gnat these days. And one story that seems like the biggest story in the world one day turns out to be sort of a secondary story days later. So it's going to have a political impact. I'm sure we'll talk about it on the show today. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think people automatically assume, you know, they automatically assume everyone cares as much as they do about every single news event that takes place every single day. And it's just just not always the case. OK, so why? why let's do this now, though. So, so why is Biden not talking about this? Well, the, the, the court is actually sort of a tricky issue for both parties. Um, I, I, and I wrote a column sort of analyzing the, the, the electoral politics of, of what's going to come out in the next few weeks. But, you know, I think Biden doesn't want to talk too much about the Supreme Court because you have an element of his party that wants to talk about court packing, that wants to talk about, uh, you know, uh, adding uh, Senate seats to D.C. And, and, and Puerto Rico, that, that when you have the conversation about the court, it's not just about should you confirm a justice in the election year? Should you confirm, you know, if it's Amy Coney Barrett, is, is that the right choice? They're gonna be, there's going to be baggage that comes with that conversation. So, you know, we look at polling and, and it's pretty, pretty clear that a majority of Americans agree with Joe Biden, agree with the Democratic position that uh, the, the the next president, whoever wins the November election, should be the one who picks the justice. But once you game things out, once you actually once you see Trump name his nominee, and it, it seems like Amy Coney Barrett is the odds-on favorite at this point, and once you kind of look at how things play out in the long term, Democrats are a little more sanguine. They they don't know if when you have an actual nominee, when you ha actually have the hearings, when you actually hear the arguments from from both parties, that th those numbers are going to be quite as decisive for them. And, you know, I think all told, that when you look at the presidential map, you know, if Democrats can make the argument of the Supreme Court about abortion and health care, which, which is, is very likely, I think they, they have an advantage on, on the whole, if only a small one, you know, in, in swing states that Trump needs to win in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in, in uh, you know, in, in, North, in North Carolina. 
the, the arguments uh, on health care and abortion may actually play to uh, the Democratic Party's advantage. But for McConnell, when you're looking at the Senate map and the, and the Senate seats that are going to make up the majority, it, they, they tilt a little more conservative. And Iowa is, is sort of the big bellwether, North Carolina as well. Um, and, and I think Republicans are a little more confident that they can maybe trade Susan Collins and, and know that they may lose her seat because of the Supreme Court fight, but maybe fortify their opportunities in some redder swing or redder battleground Senate state, states like North, Iowa, North Carolina, and then South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham is. So, so your so your so your operative theory is that politically this might help Mitch McConnell, but hurt Trump. I, I think that's a fair analysis that's what i wrote in, in, in my yeah. in my headline um yeah trump is losing the election and it's going to be hard we learned from 2018 with the kavanaugh fight you know even when republicans thought they had the upper hand uh they still never were able to build a majority of support for confirming justice kavanaugh there was still a divided country and, and there was and democrats ended up benefiting in, in in the 2018 midterm elections because of that but when you actually look at like you know the 2018 election results post kavanaugh republicans actually held their ground in the republican leaning states they won florida they won Ohio. They they won, uh, you know, the the governorship in Iowa. So you know, when you look at, at at the actual map, even though Democrats had a really strong night in the suburbs, which allowed them to take back the House, they they didn't, you know, make as much as make as many gains in sort of Trump territory in right. Republican leaning areas. That's where the Senate the Senate majority is going to be fought. It's going to be fought in North Carolina and in Iowa. So the big question, you know, you've heard the saying, Charlie, does it play in Peoria? Well, the biggest question to me for for this election is does whoever Trump picks, if it's Amy Coney Barrett, does her nomination play in Des Moines? Does it play in Charlotte? That's going to be the political test for, for President Trump and for Mitch McConnell. And, and I could see her playing very well there. I really, I really can. But let, let me give you um, a, a different analysis. Uh, our our colleague Tim Miller is looking at the at a certain kind of voter, the the voters that that uh, Trump got to flip from the Democrats, the Obama Obama Trump voter, and basically generalizing their secular working class former Democrats. They hate globalization, immigration. They hated Hillary Clinton. Um, they thought that Donald Trump was going to guy who was going to bring jobs back to their community, you know, just kind of blow blow things up and keep his hands off Medicare. So but he says, will these be the kind of people who are going to be super excited about Trump making a social conservative true believer uh, his quote unquote running mate? And particularly if the Democrats really emphasize the abortion issue and uh, Obamacare. I mean, those voters generally like Obamacare. They support legal abortion. Uh, I saw one analysis by Dave Wasserman showing that 22 percent of Trump's voters actually lean pro-choice. Uh, some swing states, the numbers were even higher. So there, there's kind of a mixed bag there on on the social conservatives. Yeah, you're going to get the that hardcore evangelical vote. But there's a kind of Trump voter that might actually go, whoa, so I'm going to lose that protection for pre-existing conditions. Uh, I'm going to you are actually going to mess with the safety net. So that's the difference between how it impacts Trump and how it impacts McConnell. The swing states for Trump are Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the Midwestern states, right? And and Tim is absolutely right that there are a lot of Obama-Trump voters in those states that are probably, and and the data shows, they're more socially liberal on on issues like abortion than maybe the average uh, 
conservative Catholic, evangelical voter. Um, so, you know, the swing states for Trump may end up uh, not being favorable to, to his pick, especially if it's Coney Barrett, who certainly has had outspoken views on, on, on Roe v. Wade, abortion, and a lot of the culture war issues. Uh, but North Carolina and Iowa, the two states that are the Senate tipping points, they actually are more culturally conservative. Uh, the strategy to win those states, especially if you're Tom Tillis and Joni Ernst, who are kind of trailing uh, behind Trump, and, and these are states that Trump could definitely win, you need to rally your base. You need, you need to get everyone on board. Iowa, almost half of the electorate in Iowa is either white uh, Catholic or white evangelical. Um, that's a lot different than Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So like the math, you have to look at these individual states, Charlie. You have to look at the political yeah. math and all these battlegrounds. So I, I, as I argued in my column, I think Trump may lose a little bit of political support because it may not help him in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the big states he needs to win to win this election. OK, we, we, we need this nerd die. This is great. No, this but I mean, if you, look at, if, you, if you look at Tillis and you look at yeah. Ernst, they're, they need more support with the bank. They, they need to energize the base. They need to run on Trump's coattails. And there, there is a larger share of socially conservative pro-life voters in those two states. So, I mean, I, I do think the math, and that's what McConnell's looking at. And McConnell's looking at not just those two states, but Montana. And he's looking at a state like South Carolina, which is suddenly very competitive. Uh, those are states in, where, where I think the court fight um, improves the Republican chances, at, at least marginally. Well, especially if, 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 if you have, you know, too much over the top rhetoric on the left. OK, so let's actually talk now about the presidential race, because uh, yet yesterday was one of those days where if we were tracking the panic meter, you know, I, th- I think they ought to have a dial. You know, they had the so-called the New York Times, you know, needle that drove everybody crazy. There ought to be a panic needle and particularly among among Democrats. And, and I think the panic needle really went up yesterday. Um, when you had some of these polls come out, that ABC poll, which, by the way, I'm a little skeptical about, but but showing, you know, very clearly that the Trump could win um, Arizona. He was competitive in Arizona. And he's leading in Florida. So, you know, you could just see people having that PTSD flashback going, oh, my God, you know, Trump wins Arizona. He wins Florida. Oh, and Pennsylvania's looking shaky. It's going to be 2016 all over again. There are some new polls from The New York Times Siena, though showing real weakness for Trump in some of the states that he shouldn't even be thinking about. I mean, we shouldn't even be talking about Texas and Georgia uh, and in places like Iowa. So give me your sense. I mean, it, it from the point of view of the non-wonk, it seems very confusing right now uh, what it's looking at. And let me just ask you one one sort of you know thesis question that that I've heard again and again. Right now, it, it feels like it is just as likely, it feels as likely, I don't know if I want to put it, make it 50-50, but it's certainly possible that, that Joe Biden could run the table and win an electoral college landslide. But it's also possible that Donald Trump could eke out the, the 270 electoral votes and win again. And so we're 40 days out and either one could win, either Biden by a blowout or a really, really close race that the Trump can can win. So do you do you accept that analysis or do you have a or what is your take? Because you're. Well, yeah, I mean, anything can happen. The question right. is what's most likely to right. happen. Right. And if you look at the, the big picture and you look at where the race stands in all these important states, you know, Joe Biden is leading uh, in, in, you know, outside the margin of error in, in, in a lot of in fact, in, in all the key battleground states, with the exception of uh, perhaps 
North Carolina and Florida. Um, he, 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 you know, the race can change. You have, you know, uh, less than a couple months left, but Biden's got to feel pretty confident where, where he stands right now. It's probably why he's taking a pretty laissez-faire approach to, to campaigning. That He sees that he has a seven-point lead nationally. He sees that he's got comfortable and consistent leads in states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. I know that poll in Arizona from the Washington Post showed the race close, and it's going to be close. But, you know, that's been a state where Democrats have held a consistent advantage. And Cindy McCain's endorsement is going to make it make a difference. I mean, that's going to have a it's a good news week. For, okay, okay, for well, OK, but, but just stop right there, because I want to ask you this. I was looking at the was it the Arizona Republic uh, front page and it was a banner headline about the Cindy McCain's endorsement. It was huge. It was like the whole front page. So the question is. Does an endorsement like that actually make a difference? And I ask that as somebody who in the past has been very, very skeptical about the power of endorsements at the presidential level. So uh, do you think that's a consequential endorsement in Arizona elsewhere? Well, it's a, in Arizona, Arizona is one of the few swing states where there are a lot of moderate, persuadable voters, John McCain Republicans. So normally endorsements don't make a big difference, even even when they come from independent yeah. figures. But, you know, Martha McSally lost 12 percent of Republicans in 2018. Uh, these are moderate minded suburban Republicans. And the trend lines in every poll suggests that Trump is having a, and, and, and McSally, too, having a whole lot of trouble hanging on to them and, and, and bringing them back. So, you know, the, the endorsement does matter. And, and the polling, the big picture polling shows that those voters have defected from the Republican Party and have defected from Trump. And to me, fundamentals mean a whole lot more than any snap poll in any, in any, you know, any, any, any outlier poll in in any given moment. So, yeah, I mean, if if I'm Joe Biden, I think the race is close in Arizona. It's not, it's not going to be a blowout, but, you know, I think you can be pretty comfortable with a with a small lead in a state that hasn't voted Democratic uh, or only voted Democratic once, I think, since 1964. So, I mean, when you look at the big picture, you can't take anything for granted. But Biden has a comfortable lead. I think he, he should feel pretty, pretty comfortable with where he stands right now. Voters are already voting and in many states. Early voting is taking place, including my home state of Virginia. Um, look, if Trump has a good week, if he has a good debate, uh, you know, if Biden makes a, a, a blunder, sure, you know, a point or two in Trump's direction could make a whole whole lot of difference. But I think people sort of panic on one outlier poll or, you know, well, one little bit of news. The, the big picture suggests that Joe Biden is remarkably competitive, not just in states that uh, he needs to win, but in states like Texas, Georgia, uh, you know, states that are not typical battlegrounds that that Republicans usually do very well in. So, you know, I, I think right now Joe Biden is a solid favorite. Uh, huh. Trump isn't. He has a chance to win. He, he's improved his prospects from the summer. But look, if you look at the polls in totality, you'd much rather be Joe Biden than you would Donald Trump. So here's an interesting question, because we do have the debates coming up. Um, where do you come down on, on the question of do the debates actually matter? We will all, of course, uh, you know, pretend and everybody, you know, in, in politics will pretend that they're potentially decisive. I see the Democrats are already wetting their bet about the fact that, you know, Joe Biden might make us some mistake or some some blunder. Um, I guess I'm in still in the camp of look at the stability of this election I, I know it's going to be overhyped. I know that it's going to be a huge audience. There's going to be a lot of buzz about it. But I, I'm, I just don't know that that will make a difference. 
I just, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, like, I always like to look at history to kind of guide, yeah. guide analysis. And remember, we all remember 2012 when Mitt Romney, uh, and I, do. I know Stuart Stevens was talking about that on a recent show. Um, you know, that, that was the, the best moment for the Romney campaign in 2012 when he really cleaned the clock of uh, the President Obama at, the, at that point. And he got a bounce in the, in the, Days after the debate, uh, to the point where you know people thought that the race had changed, the trajectory of the race had changed. What we saw, though, in, in the immediate aftermath, is that that noise and in, in, in the in, in the bump that that Romney received in the days after the debate ended up dissipating, and, and, and we went back to square one by the time the second debate started. Um, historically, debates you can get a immediate bounce, you get sugar high. We saw that with the conventions. I think Trump got a little bit of a sugar high right after his convention. It, it's dissipated a little bit since then. Um, you know, I, I don't think the fundamentals of the race will change all that much unless Joe Biden goes out there and just you know falls flat and looks you know unable to complete a sentence. And and because Trump has lowered the expectations to that level, you know, I think it's pretty easy for Joe Biden to to impress come, and surpass expectations. I, I come back to that again and again. I think that's that's the key point that that uh, you know people who have been fed a steady diet of Facebook ads of, of Joe Biden being completely senile if he comes out and defies that expectation, then I think he wins. Now I haven't had a chance because I've been working all, all morning, but I, I see that there's there's a uh, so some some he did an interview was it with Axios um, where apparently he didn't look like he was doing very well. Have you seen? You know anything about this? You know, I'm, I'm always behind on social. I mean, I, okay, I'm, I'm, it, it it doesn't matter. So I, I am I am skeptical about this, and you know, yeah, yeah, there's there's always a chance things will move, but you know that historical point that you just made is crucial because I remember I think back in 2004, George W. Bush's first debate was a disaster. He was exhausted. He was miserable. Um, I remember it really well because the only Republican pundit in the country that wouldn't admit that it was bad was Hugh Hewitt. <laughs> it was like, no, this was really great because Hugh was he was basically, you know, doing the fluffing thing, you know, way back, you know, even before Trump. But in any case, none of it actually makes a difference. I'm trying to think of the debates that actually made a fundamental difference. And I also think that there's a real downside for Donald Trump because I mean Donald Trump's an old act. Donald Trump was fresh and exciting and interesting back in 2016. I was not interested and excited, but um but if his instincts tell him, you know, to go as vicious and nasty as possible, go after Joe Biden's family, I, I just don't know um, whether or not I just don't know whether or not the that sort of, you know, un, in, in the Thunderdome approach is going to turn anything is going to turn anything around. So I'm interested to hear that you, you say that you think that, that Biden is a solid victor, because just for listeners, um, Josh is um, uh, is famous for um, his he being one of the very few pundits the week before the 2016 election when everybody assumed that Hillary would win. You actually kind of planted your flag and said, guys, you know, Donald Trump can win this election. This is how it's going to be. So you saw that coming. You you were willing to. Well, that's why you're. Your podcast is called Against the Grain, right? Well, and let's let's look at. I mean, the analysis that I made in 2016 was that we were seeing these political cross currents demographically. That 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 suburban voters were becoming more and more uh, Democratic, but white working class voters in, in midwestern states were becoming more Republican, and that created a degree of uncertainty like we had hadn't seen in many elections. Um, what we saw in 2018, though, was that the suburban vote, where where, where Trump was able to kind of at least you know, stay above water, not, not totally collapse with suburban voters. 
he fell under. I mean, he, he collapsed and hasn't gotten off off the mat since 2018. Um, so the pathway for Trump to win is essentially to turn out new vote to, to, to basically do do even better with the with the working class, the blue collar voters that that he dominated with in in, in, in 2016, and maybe even bring new voters uh, to, to to the polls. But you know, I just don't. You know, they're, 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 I, I know I tweeted a, a nugget from a Democratic strategist suggesting that there were actually a lot of, um, in the Midwestern states, a lot of new uh, white working class uh, registra- people registering to vote for the first time compared to, to non-white voters registering for the first time. And, you know, all those little nuggets can create certain anxieties with, with Democrats. But, you know, when I look at, 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 at the polling, when I look at the focus groups and the data, uh, one of the biggest challenges, and, and you mentioned the, I think you mentioned the Iowa poll. We, we've seen two polls now in the last week from the New York Times and the Des Moines Register, where Trump is either tied or losing Iowa. Um, that's a, that's a big signal because Iowa is filled with those white working class voters that swung from, and he and he won by nine points, nine points. That's this right. was not that was was not competitive, and Iowa was a lot like Wisconsin. I mean, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota are probably going to trend relatively in the same directions. That's a that's a critical point because uh, th- 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 those states are filled with those. Um, you, you talked about Tim's essay, and it's the these so, you know economically, culturally, culturally conservative, socially liberal voters uh, that that really were turned off by Hillary Clinton in 2016, and they were disproportionately represented in, in those midwestern states. And uh, Trump, 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 they swung to Trump. Uh, those voters, those same voters, if you look at the polling, aren't showing the same degree of enthusiasm. The margins aren't there for the president. So. Uh, you know, y- you want to be you want to be vigilant. You want to make sure you don't miss any late late breaking trends uh, as we get closer to November. But I, I just think that's going to be critical if Trump yeah. can't win Iowa. The elect you know the election's over. It is very much over. Okay, so um, I just want to make a, a brief comment about suburbs in Wisconsin. Okay, because I actually live in a suburb in Wisconsin. I am sitting here in Mequon, Wisconsin, talking to you. Okay, so. But but I'm reading the latest story, the New York Times. Okay, I'm going to step on some toes here. New York Times has a has a really a good story about the suburbs in in, in Milwaukee and and why they are still pro Trump as opposed to suburbs around the country. And the Dateline is Cedarburg, Wisconsin, which is one of my favorite towns. It's right north of where I live. It is kind of classic Americana. But I got to say this, okay. This is like it feels like the 15th national reporter to come to Cedarburg, Wisconsin. It's just one place. I don't know. What the, you know it's like it's like Time Magazine. Great story. But Cedarburg, Wisconsin. Uh, Politico comes to Wisconsin. Cedarburg, Wisconsin. New York Times comes to Cedarburg, Wisconsin. OK, Cedarburg is Cedarburg. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like um, there are other suburbs and it's more complicated than this. I guess I want to kind of raise my hand that people talk about what's happening with the suburban vote. And I, I think there needs to be a little bit more pushback about which suburbs are you talking about? And I don't want to, since we're kind of having a nerd fest here, I grew up in the Milwaukee North Shore suburbs, okay? This is in Milwaukee County. This is not in the Wow counties. And they used to be overwhelmingly Republican. They are now strongly Democratic. And so people if you know, know what I'm talking about. Shorewood Way, Fish Bay, Fox Point, Bayside, Glendale, River Hills. These used to be 70 percent Republican areas. They are going to vote overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. So those are the suburbs. Then you go to the Wow counties, which are suburban. There's no question about it. And they have been the beating heart of the Republican Party in Wisconsin. Everybody knows this right now. They're still going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, they may not vote in the numbers that they voted for you know, other Republicans. But there's also a diversity of suburbs. 
So everybody's in Cedarburg, which is very heavily Catholic, very heavily. It's kind of like an enclave, really hardcore pro-lifers and a variety of things. And it's very different than some other suburbs, including the one I'm in right now, because in Mequon, um, which is an affluent suburb, um, I am one of the less affluent people to live here. But it, it is becoming more and more like the Milwaukee suburbs where I walk my dog and I don't see, you know, you go to, I'm sorry, you go to Grafton or Cedarburg or you go to West Bend or you go to Brookfield, you can see Trump signs everywhere. In my hometown here, and we're a suburb, you don't see any Trump signs. In fact, I see a lot of Black Lives Matter signs. I see a lot of Biden signs. I see a lot of signs saying in, in this house, we believe science matters and things. So this demographic, but it is interesting that all the reporters, there must be some like book saying you have to go to this one suburb and write the national story about Wisconsin. Now, they may turn out to be right. It may turn out that that these are the voters who will you know, rescue Donald Trump. But I think the situation is is more complicated. And, and, I, and I think that sometimes we we do a disservice by using these shorthand, you know, small town, college educated, not college educated, because the suburbs are complicated here in Wisconsin. Well, and it's not just Wisconsin. Not not, not all suburbs are created equal. And, it, and it's right. true of every every part of the country, though. I will add that while there were suburbs in the south and, and in, in the Midwest that were in, in, in the Wow counties, for example, I mean, they were pretty resilient, even though the, the margins weren't quite where they were for Romney and for, for, for other Republican nominees in the past. You know, Trump was able to hold his ground there. And I think they, he's lost quite a bit of ground there in 2020. But I, I'm a house race junkie. You know, that, that was where I got my start when it, when it came to politics. And one of the biggest developments in this election is that, you know, suburbs that were are in states like Texas, uh, Todd Aiken's old seat in Missouri, which is in the St. Louis exurb suburbs, um, that is a district that now, now may vote for Joe Biden. It voted wow. for Trump by double digits. Uh, Indianapolis, the, the Susan Brooks district outside of Indianapolis, double digit Trump district. It now there's a lot of polling, both Democratic and Republican, showing Biden up by a little bit. So, you know, there were areas where Trump actually won the suburbs in 2016. Not and, that, and it wasn't even close. I mean, there there's a lot of conservative areas, smaller cities um, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Dallas, Houston, where the, you know, a lot of people said, you know, I may not like Trump, but I don't like Clinton either. And I, I'm voting for the, the best of the worst. Now you're seeing that a dramatic fallout, um, in the last four years and Biden okay. ended up winning a lot of those exurbs, a lot of those, those, those middle-class suburbs. So, I mean, that, that's a big deal. Not all suburbs are created equal. Uh, you know, Biden did very well in the big suburbs. I'm sorry, Clinton rather did very well in the big suburbs, but maybe she underperformed in some of the southern and, and small small city suburbs. The polling and the data I'm seeing, um, especially at these house at the house race level, shows that that, that is now a, a, a total collapse, that, that he is, you know, losing ground across the board in these huh. parts of the country. Interesting. Okay. So let, let me give you a flip side uh, to this, that that if you were to talk to a Republican here in, in Wisconsin, a Republican, you know, apparatchik here in Wisconsin, what they would say is, you know, Trump, you know, is going to win here because the enthusiasm level is through the through the roof. I don't think they're wrong about that in terms of the Republican base. And I'm thinking back historically um, about other incumbent presidents who lost for reelection. Um, obviously, George H.W. Bush, uh, Jimmy Carter were defeated for reelection. I do not remember them having the level of enthusiasm among their base that Trump has. If Trump loses, it will be a different sort of election. Democrats were somewhat dispirited. They were divided in 1980. Republicans, 
Um, I, I know no Republican who was like totally jazzed out of their minds about giving George H.W. Bush um, a, a second term. I'm sure there were members of the family, no disrespect. Um, but Trump does have that that enthusiasm level, which which does make this somewhat different than other elections. Now, that that's what the Democrat, that's what the Republicans will will say. That's what every one of them is telling me right now. The flip side is I, I can't imagine an environment that would be more motivating for Democrats. And in Wisconsin, when Democrats are motivated, they tend to win. Well, and you had that Supreme Court race in the middle of the exactly. pandemic. That, that, Perfect yeah. example. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an example of, of where the the Democratic base is right now. And you know, and we, we haven't talked about all these these Trump threats to 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 not not step aside if he loses the election. But you know, I'll do that in a minute. Don't yeah. like that. That's not going to be even people who are Republicans. That's not helping him politically. And you know, I, I don't know. How, I, 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 again, I, like I said at the beginning of the of the show, everyone needs to take a deep breath. The more Trump says stuff like that, the more he loses ground, even in red states, and the less likely we have a very close election that would create those 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 those, those crazy scenarios. So okay, well, let, let's let's go to the crazy scenarios. Um, you use the term panic porn. I guess I guess I'm addicted to the panic porn at the moment. I mean, that's you know. So yesterday, did, you know, speaking of why people are into panic, you you had this story in the Atlantic, which published this this scenario, and, and I'll just read you a paragraph. Trump's state and national legal team are already laying the groundwork for post-election maneuvers that would circumvent the results of the vote count in battleground states. Ambiguities in the Constitution and logic bombs in the Electoral Count Act make it possible to extend the dispute all the way to Inauguration Day. And since that's that's scary enough, might as well just read this other one here. Um, according to sources in the Republican Party at the state and national levels, the Trump campaign is discussing contingency plans to bypass election results and appoint loyal electors in battleground states where Republicans hold the legislative majority. With a justification based on claims of rampant fraud, Trump would ask state legislators to set aside the popular vote and exercise their power to choose a slate of electors directly the longer Trump succeeds in keeping the vote count in doubt, the more pressure legislators will feel to act before the safe harbor deadline expires. OK, so that's out there. And then the, and then the president has this press conference and reporters give him a chance to say, OK, you're not going to do anything crazy. Right. I mean, you are going to go along with the peaceful transfer of power. And this is what happened. Let's just play this uh, this, this soundbite from last night. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer? Pearl of power after the election. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand and, that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, no, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful wanna, transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Okay. All right. So, I'm going. What? <laughs> I've listened to that several times and it doesn't get any better. No, it no, doesn't. No. It doesn't. And it's truly abhorrent rhetoric. We've seen it from Trump on Twitter. And uh, you know, he's a wannabe, a wannabe authoritarian. But I think emphasis on wannabe. Um and, and and you know, I think it exemplifies the Trump presidency that you have that exchange with a Playboy reporter <laughs> trying to amp up the, the worst right. fears of Americans, where, where where we've kind of jumped the shark a little bit in 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 in, in season four of of, of, of the White House. 
Um, I, I want to focus actually, uh, uh, Mr. Charlie. I, want, I did want to focus on the Pennsylvania part of the Bart Gelman story in the Atlantic because I yes. he misses some important nuance that gets glossed over. I mean, he, he Bart's a really good national security reporter, but I think he doesn't. I, I think he kind of missed a little bit of the of the conversation with Republicans in Pennsylvania. What's going on in Pennsylvania is actually very important because. Um, They've never done mail-in balloting. They're, they're, they're setting up a mail-in system for the first time. And there are really? lots of court decisions about what votes count, what votes don't count with different in different scenarios. Pennsylvania law, and the courts back this up, requires voters to essentially have two envelopes to cast your ballot, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to put you – you know, vote, vote for who you vote for, put it in an envelope, and then put another envelope to, to make sure it's a secret ballot and, 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 and it's according to Pennsylvania state law. There have already been a number of vote, voters who have not put that second envelope in the mail, essentially cast incorrect ballots. And the these, are the, ballots, these are the naked ballots, they, right? They called, the naked. naked ballots will be the new hanging chats. I guarantee yep. it. Yep. Right? Yep. So the, these are votes that were essentially illegally cast. Now, if you remember Florida 2000, I mean, it's going to be a replay where people's intent matters more than the letter of the law, right? And that was that was the argument in Florida in 2000. I have a very good feeling we're going to hear that again in Pennsylvania in 2020. So what Gelman kind of skips over, is, and what, I, what, I, what I've heard from my sources in Pennsylvania, is that, you know, there's a scenario where the race in Pennsylvania is very close. Trump has, you know, a, a small lead. And there are, you know, tens of thousands of these naked ballots where voters didn't cast their ballot correctly that are Democrats and that we, we know they're Democratic ballots. But, you know, Democrats want to file lawsuits to say the intent matters more than the actual ballot itself, the actual rules itself. That, that, that's, that's in a way that's that's what happened in Florida in 2000. That's what these Republican strategists in Pennsylvania are, are sort of anticipating. And, and it's I mean. In a way that I mean, I, I hate to say it's normal because it's not normal. We're we're operating under an election in a pandemic where rules are changing and, and and the ways of casting ballots are different than they have been in the past. But I think the the scenario that Gelman was laying out in that piece is, is, is sort of a normal one where you know Republicans would argue that those ballots shouldn't count. Democrats would argue that the intent matters more. You'd have a sort of a chaotic scenario, and then you know the the Republicans in the legislature, you know, would would, would end up trying to resolve the mess in a partisan way. That's well, not. I mean, that, that that's not good. <laughs> that would create if, if the race was close and the and the election hinged on Pennsylvania. That would be a very bad scenario. But it's not this. You know, I think I think he's trying to raise a sinister angle to it, which I I, I haven't heard from Republicans and Democrats. I, I a lot of Democrats Democrats are very concerned about the legal maneuverings after an, a close election. But the Pennsylvania example, I think, is an illustration that, you know, the kind of the, the, the vagaries of election law uh, can get confused with just well, authoritarian I, tendencies of, of trying to steal an election. So well, I but, but we, to, we've been through this pattern before where people go, well, he would never dare do that. Oh, my God, he is doing that. Well, can he do that? Well, yes, apparently he can do that. Well, he won't get away with it. Well, who's going to stop him? This is the problem is that you take the worst case scenario for Donald Trump and ask yourself, um, who would stop him? Who would stand up? The Republicans, the Senate, the courts? Would the courts protect us? The president is now saying the quiet part out loud with the Supreme Court. I mean, he, he basically said, not basically, he, he said, you know, that one of the reasons why he wants to ram through the Supreme Court nomination is because he thinks the U.S. Supreme Court will decide the outcome of the election. He said, I think this will end up in the Supreme Court. I think it's very important. We have nine justices. So he's just basically saying, I am now counting on you know my majority on the Supreme Court to uphold whatever I do. So you may have these the you know you may have Trump 
you know, rejiggering his legal strategy now based on I own the Supreme Court. I can do it. No one's going to stop me. So you understand that, the, yeah, there, there is a certain, you know, danger of, you know, in catastrophic thinking. On the other hand, Josh, we may be heading for a catastrophe. Well, look, part part of this is because power politics is is is, is the, the name of the game right right now, and Republicans have been you know with with the Supreme Court vacancy with with the the notion that they can kind of jam things through yeah. with their base. I mean, that one really you want now. Now, I would argue that you know when you look at the twenty the two thousand Florida case that that was sort of a that mean you remember how 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 aggravated democrats were when the supreme court ruled uh that you couldn't you know end up you, know, you couldn't resolve the disputes in florida and that that bush was the the, the winner that's, a, that's a garden that's too. a garden that's a garden party compared to what we're gonna have well i mean you're saying what we're gonna have I, you know we just talked about where this election is likely to end up and and i'm a little more sanguine than you that it's not going to come to Pennsylvania. I, I mean, if you look at okay. the polling, I don't think we're going to be in a situation where Pennsylvania is necessarily going to decide the election. But even if it does, I guess what I'm saying is this is in a way this is actually this is this is just election oh, law disputes that have happened. I, I hope I hope you are right, but I'm thinking about Florida, where it's a garden party. They serve cucumber sandwiches. This is going to be the apocalypse, and we're going to be sure, served shit sandwiches, and it's just going to be. Well, I mean, like this. Trump, yeah. It's going to be crazy, no matter no matter what happens, and, and we, we were driven crazy by Trump, I think, in many ways. Yeah, but I mean, I, I just wanted to point out to the to that one story as an example, because I know people looked at that example in Pennsylvania, and I, oh yeah, when I read it, and I and I had the same reaction as you did. Uh, it sounded like you know. Trump loses Pennsylvania by, you know, five points and yet gets Republicans to overturn the results and gets, you know, faithless electors to uh, to, to vote for him in the in the Electoral College. I mean, the Supreme Court just actually ruled unanimously that uh, you can't have faithless electors. You can't have an elector that's a Trump elector that votes against the will of the state. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of nuance <laughs> that was lost in, in the piece that's driven ever and, and because they didn't it didn't have enough nuance in the piece it, everyone thinks that trump could lose the election decisively and all of a sudden declare himself the victor and he was never going to leave office yeah no not not decisively i mean there's a lot of scenarios on election night and you you mentioned you know iowa if um and i don't have no idea what's going to happen in, in florida but i think it's safe to say that if, if nine o'clock on election night um biden has won florida we we, we know the outcome of the election um, but I, you know, certainly I, have you noticed that there's like a, a bias against hope that people like struggle against being optimistic about this election? Well, it, yes. And I, I can't tell, I, I do a lot of presentations and election analysis <laughs> to groups and I, I can't, I can't tell you how many democratic leaning groups I spoke to in the month before 2018, before the Democrats won back the house. People who told me that it was hopeless, that Trump has, had rigged the system, there was no way Democrats would ever win the House back, that it was a permanent Republican majority. And, you know, weeks later, it was it was a decisive landslide for the Democrats. I would tell you right now and to your listeners, I, I, I think it's very likely Joe Biden wins the presidency and there's a very good chance Democrats win back the Senate albeit narrowly and, and 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 power politics works to the democrats advantage because trump trump's positions and his rhetoric is not popular with a with, with a significant majority of the country democracy is working as intended it just takes time <laughs> and I, I you know maybe we'll replay this in in, in a few months and you know, will we'll see how naive and, and uh, i'm feeling uh, i'm I'm feeling better. Optimistic, I was, but you know, honestly, I've heard sort of the panic and the anxiety from Democrats, even when the data and the evidence suggested a lot of it was unwarranted. 
And um, I look at the the way this race is shaping up, and I think you know Trump has a small chance. He, you know he's he's close enough that he could have a good couple weeks and get back in the game. But right now, the the picture is pretty grim for him, and uh, it, it may not be a close election. It may be an election where Joe Biden comfortably wins most of the battleground states. And I think all of these these nightmare scenarios would be totally, um, you know, totally ridiculous, frankly, uh, under that type of outcome. Well, and to go back to your point, for for people who have, were panicking about the president's comments last night, um, your your point: this is not helping him. This is exactly the kind of rhetoric when he suggests that he wouldn't go along with a peaceful transfer of power that alienates more more voters. And it's it, it's not it is not going to close the gap. And I I am thinking of the various things that would would close the gap. You know, for a while there, he was assuming that law and order was going to do it. And of course, you know, in the wake of the Brianna Taylor uh, decision, there's going to be more disorder. Um, but he's already sort of fired that shot and it did not work for him the way I think that he had hoped. Um, you know, he's still obviously hoping for the economy, but um, the stock market seems to be kind of realizing, by the way, we're not going to get this stimulus package that had been baked in. Right. I mean, they they had been assuming everyone had been assuming that 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 sooner or later, Congress, of course, was going to pass another pandemic stimulus package. Everyone assumed it. And now I think it's dawning on people that's just not going to happen. And that doesn't help Republicans. It doesn't help no, Mitch McConnell. Does I mean, right? I can tell you, Susan Collins, most of her ads for the over the summer were talking about how she was a key vote in passing the first PPP, mm-hmm. you know, the first uh, Paycheck Protection Act that helped help businesses and individuals. Well, that that's long gone, right? I mean, that, and, and now if the Senate doesn't pass anything before the election, you know that that could be the the, the issue that that dooms Collins's reelection campaign and a, a lot of other Republicans in in swing states. So, I mean, politics works; it takes time. I, I, I am much more. I mean, I am generally an optimist. <laughs> yeah, so you yeah. know, take that with take that take 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 the my analysis with that with that lens. But you know, the reason Democrats aren't all of a sudden talking about packing the court and aren't talking about adding uh, statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico is because they've done their own polling and that's not what voters want either. Um, so they're even as crazy and as, as, as uh, you know, far to the bases as certain parts of the electorate have gone, there is still a middle in this country. There is still a need for politicians to respond to, to the desires of voters. And, you know, I think that, I mean, look, if you have what, what, what the most likely outcome based on the polling right now, Joe Biden wins fairly comfortably. The Senate is narrowly divided, but Democrats have a 51 seat advantage and they hold their majorities in the House. You know, that 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 could lead to actually some some degree of, of normalcy that you would actually have to compromise. You'd have to um, have some degree of, you know, you'd, you'd give Joe Manchin the, the kind of the swing vote in the Senate and he's not going to be someone who's going to be playing to either side's space. Well, and, and, and also add into that that you have a 6-3 conservative majority or a 5-4 conservative majority in the Supreme Court that would block any of the most radical proposals. That would perhaps come through a, uh, uh, you know, an AOC dominated uh, House of Representatives. Josh Crashauer, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Josh Crashauer's work you can find in the National Journal, and I uh, regard I regard your stuff always as go to stuff, particularly this close to the election. So thanks for coming back on the podcast. Always love being on, uh, Charlie. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. Amazingly. There are just 40 days to go until Election Day.